So let me ask you, have you ever watched a movie or a show or read a book in which everything seemed dark and, and great despair was the theme of the book and kind of apocalyptic, like everything is going to come to a, a cataclysmic conclusion, and yet in the midst of the story, when you, when you kind of uh, drill it down a little bit, you get a couple of characters that show like great love and care and compassion for one another. And, and in the midst of all this horrific stuff going on around them, you're seeing this story of human beings, real human beings on the ground. I, I kind of think about it a little bit like the war going on right now in Ukraine, right? We watch the news and we see all this horrific stuff, but then you might have a story where you hear from one or two people, real human beings on the ground living this out in this really tragic situation. That's a little bit of the context of the book that we're going to look at today. It's during the time of the book of Judges, and if you were with us last week, the book of Judges is one of the darker books in the Bible, and one of the, the things that is said in the book of Judges is that everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And when everybody does what is right in their own eyes, chaos happens. And there would be great chaos and great rebellion towards God. God would bring in some some of the surrounding nations to discipline Israel, and then he would raise up a judge who would help deliver Israel, and then they'd go right back through the same cycle again. But some of it is really, really dark, and some of it is really tragic, some of the things that are happening during this time. So that's the big picture, right? Now we drill down to this story in the book of Ruth. And we, we drill down to the story now that gets even more complicated because now there's famine in the land. So you've got all this great chaos going on, and there's famine, and there's lots of pain and suffering and struggle, and yet there's three characters that are going to emerge, and we're going to see this beautiful story, even in the midst of all of that junk, real human beings. And remember, these are real stories. I always want to have you step back and, and engage your imagination and remember that these are real people. These are not just fairy tale kind of stories. This is not C.S. Lewis kind of stuff, right? I love C.S. Lewis. But the Bible are real people, real stories of what really happened. And so we're going to look in the midst of all that chaos, what happened to these three people. And, and I want you to kind of, again, try to imagine yourself in their shoes and imagine what they're going through and what they're experiencing and imagine what God is doing in and around them. But this is a book that starts out that has a lot of pain and suffering and struggle. So our three main characters in the book are Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. And as I mentioned, there's famine in the land. And so because of the famine, they have to, to, to migrate. They're, they're refugees looking for food. And they go to the land of Moab. So Ruth and her husband and two sons. Now let's get the picture. Think, you pick whichever character you want to be in the story and imagine it. But Ruth is married. She has a husband. She has two sons. They're in desperate need of food. That should kind of remind us of something in the Old Testament from Genesis, right? Where Jacob is in need of food and he sends his sons down to Egypt. Well, we've got another situation. Desperate need of food. They go to the land of Moab. The Moabites are not their favorites. Um, these are two nations that have had conflict. But now they're going there looking, hoping, and praying that they'll find food. They settle there and then the first tragedy happens. So they're refugees. They go to Moab. They find food, that part's taken care of, and then the first thing that happens, that is the first of the tragedies, is that Naomi's husband dies. Okay, so the patriarch, he passes away. So there's Naomi, and now her two sons. Think about the experience of losing a spouse. One of the things that I just want to make this really clear, because one of the things that can happen in the book of Ruth is that we tend to focus on the economic sides of the losses that she's experiencing and how destitute this will make her. But I don't want us to lose the human side of this. Her husband's dead, okay? Let's forget about all the economic stuff that comes from that. Her husband's died. And now there she is grieving the loss of her husband. She is now a widow. And then the next tragedy happens. Both of her sons die. So here she is. She has a husband, two sons, and all of a sudden, they're all gone. Husband dies, both sons die. There's a great, great pain and tragedy going on here. You think about that. Think about all of that loss. You know, in the years of ministry, you do run into people that have experienced great, great loss. Um, I've known somebody who has experienced this amount of loss. And just 
to see her as an older woman and the, the strength of her character having experienced all of this kind of stuff. This, this isn't just in the Bible, right? This is in the real world. You and I experience these kinds of pains and losses. And so what I'm going to do now is take it through some different steps. Let's just think of them as scenes in the play or acts in the play. And the first one is the first picture after all of this tragedy is sorrow and weeping. And so this is from Ruth. And if you do have your Bibles and you can just open to Ruth, we're going to be going through it. You can use your phones if you want. If you're ever in need of a Bible, we have them on the back table as you come in as well. So the first picture is sorrow and weeping. This is what uh, Ruth 1.9 says. The Lord grant you that you may find rest. Each of, okay, so, so she's in this place of grieving, and she's talking to her daughter-in-laws. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the household of her husband. Then she kissed them, and I just, this week, this just powerfully hit me, and they lifted up their voices and they wept. They responded the way that you should respond. Here they are. Naomi is saying, hey, I, 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 I'm going to encourage you guys to, to leave and go back to your homes. But they just kissed each other. And, and can you see this picture of these three, three women just sitting down in the dust and just weeping? And they wept because of the great sorrow and the pain that they were experiencing. And then they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. Naomi's saying, i got no, no reason to stay here in Moab. I'm going to go back to my people. And they said, we'll go with you. But Naomi said to them, turn back, my daughters. Will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that, that they may become your husbands? Remember, we've talked about that, uh, the, the issue of Leverite marriage, which means that you know, she could have children that... So let me back up here in just a second and say it like this. So, so if a, 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 a man died like that, his brother was supposed to marry his wife and give a family to his brother's name, okay? So the brother was supposed to marry, give a family to his brother's name, but now both brothers are dead. So that can't happen. And so Naomi's saying, I can't have another son that will grow up and be able to be your husband's. So she said, the best thing for you to do, my daughters, turn back and go home for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband, and this night we should bear sons, would they be therefore wait, and would you therefore wait until they're grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? She's saying, come on, you guys, if I even had a baby, got pregnant tonight, that baby would never grow up in, in, in time for you to marry and have children. And then she says this powerful thing in verse 13. No, the Lord has gone out against me. Have you ever been there, that that's how you felt? And then it says, and then they lifted up their voices again, and they wept. There's just great pain and sorrow in this section here. And Orpah, she kissed her mother-in-law and said, yep, I'll go back to my father and hope for something better to happen in my life. Maybe another husband. If nothing else, I'll live in my father's house. But Ruth, it says, clung to her. At this point in the story, we see this deep outward signs of emotion and the deep outward signs of the devastation of the loss. Again, I just want you to think about it. Naomi's case, death of a husband, death of her two sons, and not only her two sons, but death of all of her children. That was the children she had. So she lost her husband, all of her children. Ruth and Orpah, they both are experiencing the loss of husbands. So you have these three women all experiencing these dynamics of those losses. And I just want you to hear this from your pastor this morning. It's not lost on me today that some of you, as you hear this this morning, you have experienced great personal loss. It's not lost on me. That I know that some of you have lifted up your voices in great sorrow and have wept. You have felt as if the Lord has gone out against you, just like Naomi felt. You've lifted up your voices and you have wept with others who have experienced the loss with you. You've had other people come alongside you during your time of grief and you have cried together and lifted up your voices together. I want you to know, and this is important for me this morning that, that you hear this, I want you to know that we want to be a church and a family that grieves with each other. I, I want... 
Rock Hill and Rock Hill Chester Park to be a place where we walk through life together, and when we experience these things, we experience them together, not in isolation, not off on our own, but that we come alongside one another, and we grieve together, and we support each other during these times of great pain and loss and grief. We want to be a church that practices Romans 12, 15. This is what it says. Rejoice with those who rejoice, Taylor and Mark, right? We want to rejoice in that today. And we want to weep with those who weep. If you've lost somebody in recently or even farther back that still it is a deep pain in your life or you've had some experience that is such a deep pain that sometimes it's hard for you to talk about it, we want you to know that this is a place where we can weep together as well. There isn't anything that should be off the table when it comes, for, comes to us being able to come alongside each other and help each other and support each other when we're going through hard times. And this, we're talking about loss here, but there's other kinds of experiences that we, that we have that cause us to weep and cause us to feel as if God has abandoned us. And when that happens, we're supposed to be able to come, around, come alongside each other and walk with each other through it. Some of you heard me share this story before, but when my mom passed away, you know who it was that came alongside me? Was a hundred inmates at a prison (laughs) of all the crazy places. And, and, And my church people did too, and I had a lot of people that loved on me during that time. But those guys, it was amazing. And one of the reasons was, you know one of the greatest fears that men in prison have? That their moms will die while they're in prison almost to a, to a man, I've only met one or two guys that thought differently on this, but the most consistent and good person in their life had been their mother, right? And so a few of them had bad moms, but most of them had these moms that loved them even while they were in prison. And man, those guys came around me, and, and I experienced this, this great care from a bunch of guys that you would think, you know, you couldn't get that from. Well, if we can experience it from guys that are in prison, right, how much more from those of us who are in places that might be a little healthier and a little better, loving Jesus, just like these guys did, but they were incarcerated, loving Jesus, caring and growing in our faith, how much more should we be able to come alongside each other? And then how much more should we be able to say, hey, I need you to come alongside me? What Ruth is going to see in part of this is her need uh, excuse me, what Naomi's going to see is her need for Ruth and her need for others to, to stay in there with her during the pain and suffering that she's going through. But I want us to be a church that rejoices with those who rejoice and that we weep with those who weep. And I also want to be able to say that they had great reason to weep. They had great reason to lift their voice in sorrow and that we would, we would never be the people that come alongside and say, well, just come on, let's toughen up, let's get through this together. no. I mean, a husband and two sons, you're going to weep, and you should weep. And we should weep alongside. You see, there's reasons at different times in our lives when it's right to lift up our voices in pain and sorrow. But when we do it, we shouldn't do it alone. Yes, cry out to God on your own, and when you're in your times of quiet, cry out to Him. But then let others come alongside you as well. Let others come alongside and support you and be with you and encourage you in those great times of sorrow. This is, these verses are painful verses. When you really stop to think about real human beings sitting there crying out to God, not sure where to go, where to turn, what to do. And they lifted up their voices and they wept. And then finally, Naomi turns and she says in verse 15, now we're t- changing from this sorrow and weeping to a scene of commitment. Commitments are about to be made. Some very powerful and profound commitments are about to be made. And Ruth turns, excuse me, I keep switching these two in and out. Naomi turns to Ruth and says, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, and here's, listen to this commitment she makes, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. And where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do, do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. 
Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. The Jewish reader of this story is going to be shocked by what they see. Now, this, remember, this is a, a, the Old Testament, and this is the, the Jewish Bible, and the Jewish reader would be reading this, and they would be shocked, shocked by this young Moabite woman who's going to show such loyalty to Naomi that she says, wherever you go, I'll go. Your God's my God. Where you die, I die. And she's not required. There's nothing in her tradition or in her history and her law that would cause her to, to respond like this. But they're shocked as they're reading this, that this young Moabite woman would be so committed to Ruth. And I want to remind you again the covenant that God made with Abraham, because this is going to be important as we keep unpacking this. The covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 says this, And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And when God's people are obedient to him, all the families of the earth will experience the kingdom of God's reign and, his, and what it's supposed to be like and what the reign of God's kingdom should look like through his people living it out. And here we see this young Moabite woman, somebody from outside of the family who's practicing a love and a loyalty to a Jewish mother-in-law that would shock and, and even humble the readers of the Old Testament. And it even shocks and humbles Naomi. She can't believe it. And we get a little bit of a glimpse into what we will see in the New Testament when the Gentiles are grafted in and are so transformed by the Spirit of God that they reflect the kingdom and bless the nations like the, the Jewish people were supposed to do in Genesis chapter 12. And this blessing of the nations is going to come through all of those people who are the people of God. And the people of God are those who are living out and practicing the principles of the kingdom. So this young Moabite woman is actually being grafted into the people of God, and you can see by the heart that she has that she is living out the kingdom principles, even though she's not Jewish. That's the amazing thing of this. And what we're going to see at the end of all this story is that Ruth, the Moabite, becomes an indispensable part of God's fulfillment of his covenant in Genesis 12. And this should cause all of us to go, wow, this is confusing and I don't get it, but it's crazy that God will use all kinds of people to accomplish his purposes. And he's going to use this young Moabite woman who's going to actually be living out her faith in the most practical of ways, and God's going to work through her to fulfill his promises in Genesis 12, and she's actually living that out by blessing somebody by the way she's being transformed. And it's just an amazing picture when you think of the thread, the, our, our, our series, when you think how it's all connected. And here's this woman living out kingdom principles who's not even Jewish, but she's being grafted into the people of God because he's not concerned about sacrifices and, and that kind of stuff, right? He's concerned about hearts, and her heart has been transformed. And she's sitting there with her mother-in-law and saying, I'm with you to the very end. I'm not going to let you be alone. I'm not going to let you be destitute. I'm going to be with you. Now, this doesn't solve everything because the next picture and the next scene is what I call bitterness and emptiness. Okay, so we've got these commitments that have been made. Now we get this place of bitterness and emptiness. And, and this is what happens. They go back to their hometown and to, back to where she came from. So the two of them went up until they came to Bethlehem. Ever heard that name before? And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred, because that was her hometown, was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? And it's about 10 years' time since they've left, at least. And so, is this Naomi? And she said to them, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity against me? Naomi has now moved from sorrow and weeping to an experience of believing that God has dealt bitterly with her. This isn't over for her, what she's experiencing inside. She believes that he has afflicted her, who was once full, but now the Lord has made her empty. She believes that her loss means that the Lord has spoken against her. She acknowledges that he is the Lord Almighty. She's not ignoring that. She goes, he exists. He's the Lord Almighty. 
but she believes that he's brought calamity upon her and has spoken against her. And to go through so much tragedy and, and to weep and cry out to God and then to come to this place where God is against me, that's heart-wrenching. It's heart-wrenching when you see this part of the story because where else then can she turn? She comes to a place in which she believes that the Almighty has been against her and brought her to this place for some reason. That leaves her no place to go for comfort. Where is she going to go at this point? She is in, when, when you're talking about a person being emotionally and, and internally at the very lowest possible place, this is where she's at. There's just nothing but great despair for her. She has wept and experienced all of that. Now she's at this place where there's a bitterness and an emptiness, and she's saying, God is against me. And there's no place now for her to turn for comfort. Or is there? That's the good part of the story, right? There is one that is still there. In the midst of all this, Naomi has missed one thing. Ruth is still there. God has not left her without hope and without kindness, and Ruth is still there, and God is still there, even when she feels like she's been left, even when she feels like God has abandoned her, even when she feels like you fill in the blank because maybe you've been there. And God hasn't gone anywhere. She has faced great tragedy, and she has feeling a deep bitterness and emptiness and loss, and she feels as if God has against her and brought calamity upon her for some reason that she doesn't know. And yet God is still standing right there. And, and he has left somebody, a remnant. He has left Ruth with her. And now the story is going to take a turn. So all that despair, all that darkness, all that pain and suffering, and she has this place of emptiness and bitterness, and she tells people, change my name. That's how deep her despair is. And then all of a sudden we get this turn to hope and kindness. Now some hope is going to start to be shown, and she's going to start to feel some hope, and it's going to be through the kindness of one of God's people. And what happens is that Naomi goes out, and, and this comes from Leviticus chapter 23. Let me just read one of the Old Testament laws that this person that is going to show her kindness and hope has been obeying and practicing. Okay? This is Leviticus 23:22. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your fields right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings. That means the stuff that your harvesters drop after you harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. And so what happens in chapter 2 is Naomi goes out to a field, and I don't know if, it, if, if you've ever seen this, if you grew up in farm country, you might have experienced this. Where I grew up, the farmers would go through the cornfields, right, and they'd pick the corn, and they'd lose some of it. There'd be whole ears of corn that would be left out in the field, and it wasn't worth their, their work to go back and pick that up. Sometimes as kids, especially where I lived, we had chickens, and sometimes we had other pets that would eat corn, and we'd go out in that cornfield, and we'd pick up those, those ears of corn, and that was called gleaning. We'd bring them back, and, and, and we would use them for something. Um, a great memory I have of my grandfather, who was a farmer, and next to him was the canning company owned some of the land next to, to his farm. And every year, whatever the crop they had, often it was sweet corn, that was our favorite, they would leave two rows of corn along his, along his property as like a little thank you for being a good neighbor. And we'd go out and we'd pick whatever it was that they left. And usually, again, our favorite was sweet corn. And we'd all go out there and pick out these two rows of sweet corn. And we'd have sweet corn coming out of our ears. And it was just a picture, though, of like, we just want to be a good neighbor. Say thank you. In this picture, it was God saying, this is how you help the poor. So Naomi is out there. And she's in this field. And they're dropping stuff. And she's picking it up as the law says she can. And she's collecting it. And this is verse 19. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So the man who owned that field said, Hey, guys, just let her pick up whatever she wants. And in fact, he went a little step farther, and you know, here's a little, uh, I don't know if this is a way to try to attract somebody's attention, but he said, Guys, drop some more for her, okay? <laughs> drop more so that she has plenty of food to pick up. Okay? But, but he wanted to bless her. And it says, where did you glean today and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. And she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. 
And Naomi said to her, also Naomi goes, what? May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. The first response she has, wait a minute. The Lord is showing us some kindness and he has not forsaken us. God's good gifts of hope now start to well up in her. And that's a gift from God. Hope is a gift. And, and now she starts to experience the kindness from someone else and gives her hope through the kindness of Boaz. It's interesting, as, as much as we seek the Lord and look for comfort from him, sometimes we just need that person who comes alongside of us and touches us and puts her arm around us and says, I'm here for you. So Naomi has been talking to the Lord and says, I feel destitute, the Lord's left me, and the Lord says, I'm here for you, but I'm going to show it to you by sending somebody. I'm going to work through somebody to come alongside you and give you hope and encouragement. And so he did this to the love and care of Boaz, who's just following the scripture. Boaz is just doing what God said. And he's expressed great love and kindness to Naomi and to Ruth. And now we're shifting from hope and kindness to the picture of a redeemer. Because in the last half of verse 20, here's what she says at the first half, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And then here's the picture of the redeemer. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Think of where we've been. Now all of a sudden she's like, look at this. One of our redeemers has come into our circle of influence. Now, what is this idea of a redeemer? I'm just going to read this from one of the commentators because I think it helps us understand what a kinsman redeemer is. The kinsman redeemer is a male relative who, according to the various laws of the Old Testament, had the privilege or responsibility to act on behalf of a relative who was in trouble, in danger, or in need. The Hebrew term for kinsman redeemer designated one who delivers or rescues. The kinsman redeemer was one because of their close nature of their relationship to the person in trouble was to, to, to redeem them at some level. And in this case, we're going to see what that redemption looks like. But a redeemer now exists and Naomi goes, wow, there is a redeemer and, and his job, his role was to actually, in this case, it would look different in different cases, but in this case, because of the death of Ruth's husband, his role was to marry Ruth and to have a family by Ruth that would be accredited to her husband who has died. And so that's how the law worked. And so now Naomi is going, whoa, one of our redeemers now is like interacting with you and having conversation with you and knows you, but the catch is still, will he do the redemption? Okay, so now we have the Redeemer, but will he redeem her? That's the question. So now the next picture comes in Ruth chapter 4. He does redeem her. He does step up. He does do what's right. Think of all that they have experienced, all of the loss we're talking about, and now all of a sudden when everything seems like there's no way that anything can turn and bring hope and goodness in their lives, all of a sudden the kinsman redeemer shows up and he actually redeems her. This is what it says in Ruth 4, starting verse 10. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife. Now this is a financial transaction, so don't get caught up in the word bought. It's just a financial situation of what's going to happen. And what happens, they find out there's a closer kinsman redeemer, and it's going to cost him some finances and some inheritance in order to, to do the right thing and marry Ruth, and he decides not to. So Boaz decides to continue with that process and, and redeem her. I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers, and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. And he, was, he made this transaction in front of all the village leaders. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. And it's a beautiful picture, because this is what he says. He goes, you know what? I'm doing the right thing here, and I'm doing the right thing to perpetuate the name of this dead man. Boaz gives us a great picture of this kindness and love and doing the right thing in this very strange context for us. But he's saying, I'm doing this that the name of the dead man may not be cut off from among the brothers and from the gates of his native place. 
and you're witnesses to why I'm doing this today. So he redeems her, and the next picture we see is blessing. Blessing. This is what they say in verse 12. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. He's saying, now we have gone from this great tragedy, this great pain, all this loss, to a place of blessing. And the city people say to Boaz, may you be blessed, and may there be an offspring by this marriage that you are having with Ruth. And may this offspring bless you, and may it be a blessing to others. And so the village, the town people are, are... are like speaking a blessing on them. And can you imagine Naomi? She's just got to be standing there going, wow, I lost my husband. I lost my two sons. I'm telling people the Lord is against me. There's great bitterness in my soul. Change my name. And now all of a sudden, now I have new life. My, my, my daughter-in-law, who is my daughter, the relationship is a mother-daughter relationship, right? With that kind of tightness and closeness. She's marrying, and she's going to have a family, and our lineage is going to go on. And on the financial side, I'm going to be blessed and taken care of and all that. That's a whole other side of it. And she's just watching all of this. Why are they being blessed? This is, this is the part, this is the thread, this is why this all matters. A redeemer has come, he's going to redeem her, now she's experiencing blessing so that we might be blessed. This is what's so profound about all this. They're experiencing this great blessing, right? But this great blessing is going to bless you and I. And this is how. Now these are the generations of Perez, Boaz, fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. What? How does that matter? <laughs> well, we're going to see in a few weeks that a covenant and a promise has been made by God that through the line of David, a Messiah is going to come. A Redeemer is going to come that finalizes the redemption. And so all of this happens so that you and I might be blessed through Naomi and Ruth being blessed. Because Boaz is going to have a son, Boaz and Ruth, named Obed. And he's going to have a son named Jesse. And he's going to have a son named David. Now, you're reading through the Old Testament, and you've just read Ruth, and you go through the rest of it, and you're a, 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 a Jewish person reading through your Old Testament, and now you're at the time past Jesus, and let's say you're living in like 40 A.D. or 50 A.D., and maybe a little bit later. These haven't all been collected quite like this yet, but they're still out there. They've been written. And so you're reading, and all of a sudden you get to the Matthew 1.1, which says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And if you're a Jewish person, you're like, whoa, all these promises, here they are. I maybe shared this story with you before, but I met a woman who came to faith in Jesus Christ through the genealogy of Matthew chapter 1. <laughs> okay? Now, most of the time when I tell people to, to read the Bible, I'm kind of a systematic person, so I have a hard time telling people start in John. I like start in Matthew. You've got to start at the beginning of the New Testament, right? I tell them to skip verses 1 through 17 because <laughs> it's a genealogy. I know you're going to get bogged down there. I say, start with Matthew 1.18, all right? This woman, I met her one time. She spoke in the chapel where I worked at, Northwestern College. And she said, and she was Jewish. And she said her whole life she knew the Jewish Old Testament. And she was told the New Testament was Christian. And that was for Christians. And she wasn't Christian. But one day she decided that she wanted to read the whole Bible, the Christian Bible. And she was starting in Genesis 1, and she knew all these stories, and she's reading all the Old Testament, stuff that she knew and grew up with and was familiarized with. And then she literally turned the page of the last page of the Old Testament and read the first verse of the New Testament, and she said, Jesus Christ was the son of David and was the son of Abraham? I never knew that. I thought Jesus Christ was a Christian. <laughs> and Jesus is a Jew? And as she then saw that and read the rest of the genealogy, 
she realized that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the one that the whole Old Testament had been pointing to. She understood that. Just like we're trying to do in this series, that it is all pointing to the coming of the Christ, the Redeemer. And this is a story that shows the miraculous things God does to, to continue the line and the lineage of where the Messiah is going to come from. What do we do with this as I wrap up this morning? I have three applications for you. The first one is, I want you to hear this, and if you've lost me, come on back. This is really important. A Redeemer has come for you. Put your name in it. A Redeemer has come for you. I'm just going to read from this commentator because I just, again, I think you put it so well, I don't, can't put it better. In the New Testament, Christ is often regarded as our example of a kinsman redeemer because as our brother, he also redeems us because of our great need, one that only he can satisfy. In Ruth 3, in Ruth 3 9, we see a beautiful and poignant picture of the needy supplicant unable to rescue herself requesting of the kinsman redeemer that he cover her with his protection, redeem her and make her his wife. In the same way, the Lord Jesus Christ bought us for himself out of the curse, out of our destitution, made us his own beloved bride and blessed us for all generations. He is the true kinsman redeemer of all who call on him in faith. We have a kinsman redeemer who knows what it's like to be a human being, and he has wept, he has had compassion, he got hungry, he's been tired, he's been tempted in every way that we were. He's had deep agony in his spirit. He suffered emotionally and spiritually and physically and has pain when he was on the cross. He knows all of what it's like to be you and I, and he is our closest brother. And he is our closest relative, and he has been, he is our redeemer, and he has come to redeem us, and he has come to redeem you. I can't give you better news than that today, that he has come to redeem you. Second application today, I want to remind us that our kinsman redeemer, Jesus, will use his people, those that he's redeemed, to help each other in times of distress and need. He does this so that we can begin to live out his kingdom purposes and, and the way his kingdom was supposed to be. And one of the ways his kingdom is supposed to be is that his kingdom people come alongside each other and help each other in great times of need and distress. So we were never supposed to do this alone. We are supposed to do this in a community with other brothers and sisters who've been redeemed by our big brother, the one who's been our great kinsman redeemer, now redeems me so that I can be changed and transformed and come alongside you and you come alongside me and we help each other in our times of distress and need. Jesus and Ruth are two pictures of that. And so we're supposed to be a body that does that for one another. And the last application is that Jesus, who is our kinsman redeemer, he wants his rescued people to remember that we're rescued and then that we would be messengers of rescue and redemption and hope for those who've never heard that the Redeemer has come. And, and if you ask me about what we say about here with the display and declare and delight, it's right there. A Redeemer has come for you, and I should delight in that and rejoice in that and spend time worshiping and being encouraged by that. A Redeemer has come and, and changed me, so I'm supposed to be helpful for you, and I'm supposed to display my faith by loving and caring and being supportive and help people in time of need. And the last one is I'm supposed to be able to declare it. And, and I, I want to just challenge you and encourage you this morning as we look forward. We, we just hit our two-year mark as a church. We're trying to decide if that really counts because a year of it was COVID, right? <laughs> so are we a year old or two years old or whatever that looks like? And I think the first two have been places that we've been doing well at. I think the third one now is where we need to put our attention, that, that we are now saying as a redeemed people, part of what we need to be focusing on now moving forward is about sharing that news to other people that there is a way to be rescued and that you need to be redeemed as well. And there is hope and that Jesus is that hope. I just talking to a really good friend of mine the other day, and he was just pumped up. He was just in a place where God had been working in his life, and he just was sharing, and we were just talking, and he said, you know what? 
God laid it on my heart this year that I need, and he's part of a campus at a church in another town, um, that big, large church that started a new campus, and he's part of that campus. And he goes, God's just been laying it on my heart that I need to invite one family a month to church. He goes, I haven't been invited. I've been doing these other two things, but I haven't really been thinking about that much lately. And he said, uh, so God put on my heart that this year, starting in January, I'm going to invite one family a month to church. And he goes, you know what? He goes, Dean, it's March. I've invited 10 families to church. <laughs> he goes, I just got pumped about it and just started doing it. And, and then he was telling me this great story. I'm just going to tell it to you really quick. But he goes into a, 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 into a sporting goods store. He goes, I'm going ice fishing. I didn't need anything, but I decided to go in and just buy something. <laughs> and so I go into the store, and I think I'm just going to ask whoever I see stocking the shelves, hey, listen, I got, I got all my stuff, but what's the new hot thing for ice fishing? What's the best thing right now going? And he goes, I asked this guy, and it turns out that he's a pastor who just got beat up at his last church through the whole COVID mess and all that was going on for a lot of pastors. There's a lot of pastors that left the ministry in the last two years. And he said, you know, I love Jesus, but I don't want anything to do with the church right now. And he's stocking shells at a sporting goods store. My friend Aaron says, hey man, I'm going to invite you to church this Sunday. <laughs> because God's been putting it on my heart to invite people to church. And he said, why don't you come to church with me this Sunday? Listen, you guys, there's a lot of people that need this message of redemption, right? Need this message of hope that you and I have. And so all of this comes from Ruth. I want us to continue to grow in our gratefulness for having a Redeemer. I want us to continue to grow in how we love and care and support with one another. But I think this passage reminds us that all of this was moving to the place where everyone could know that there is a Redeemer. That everyone could be rescued because everyone is in this place where they need a Redeemer. And you and I, we got the answer. We got the message. I'm just going to invite you. I'm going to invite you to take up the challenge of whatever the Lord puts on your spirit about that, that we want to be a place that we do that.